Thanks for tuning in to the Meadowview Weekly Sermon Podcast. We are a church who seeks to grow in Christ, gather in community, and go in obedience to the Great Commission. All right. If your eyes are drawn towards Jesus, grab your Bibles. How about that? All right. Acts chapter 18, picking up where we left off last week. We're going to be going through verses 1 through 23. And discussing evangelism in a culture of immorality. Last week we left off and um, Paul was in Athens. We talked about evangelism, a culture of idolatry. And this is now going to be in Corinth, a culture of immorality. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a black hardback ESV somewhere near you. And if you need help finding the page on that one, uh, depending on the bigger Bible or the skinnier Bible, it's either going to be page 927 or 872. 927 or 872. It'd be a lot easier if all the Bibles were the same, but it's just not not the case in this room. So uh, Acts chapter 18, as Paul has made his way to Corinth, he's now reached a city with a population of over 750,000 people. This is a huge city. It's, It's situated perfectly between the northern and the southern areas of Greece so that there was trade that constantly went through this area. Corinth's main attraction, as you can tell, from this next slide, was a large pillared um, temple to the goddess Aphrodite or Venus, the goddess of sex. And this temple set on a hill some 1,800 feet high, and it was the focal point of the entire city. This city was known for its sexual immorality, and the priestesses or the prostitutes from this temple would work their way into the city at night and offered their services for people to worship in like manner. As you can tell, this was a city that was the original sin city. It is our worst case scenario, Las Vegas. Uh, It is the worst case scenario, Mardi Gras. For those of you who like Pirates of the Caribbean, it is Tortuga, right? Is that, is that how it goes? Yeah. So it is the worst idea you can come up with when it comes to a city. And Paul has reached this place on his own. And it is characterized by a culture of immorality that is, number one, a culture of self-promotion. A culture of immorality is a culture of self-promotion. Self-promotion is that image is everything. It's a culture where sex sells. It's a culture where you have to put the right picture on social media with the right filter, and you have to have the right pose, and you have to make sure everyone approves of it. It is all about self-promotion. They didn't really have that back in Corinth, but if they had, I'm sure it would have been pretty uh, disgusting. They were being forced to keep up with an appearance. If you look at the artwork, and I'm not suggesting you do it, of Aphrodite, you can see that it was a culture of self-promotion. It was a culture that highly valued the picture of indecency. Number two, it's self-absorbed. A culture that is self-absorbed, a self-promoting culture, a self-absorbed culture. A culture of immorality is one that is only concerned with its own needs. It's one that is all about itself. It is worried about success. It's worried about um, putting putting yourself before others. It's a culture that is self-reliant. It's a culture that doesn't feel like it needs anyone and especially doesn't need God. A characteristic of a culture of immorality, finally, is a culture of self-indulgence. A self-indulgent culture is a culture that says pleasure is the highest aim. Plus, 
I am my highest authority, which then equals a self-indulgent and immoral lifestyle. I lay this out to tell you that it, it doesn't take much for us to realize that we live in a culture of immorality. It's all around us. It's every time you get out your device and you scroll through your social media or every time you turn on the TV and you try to watch a sitcom that's no longer acceptable for the whole family to watch. Am I right? It's a culture of immorality. It's a culture of self. It's a culture of self-promotion, a culture of self-absorption, and a culture of self-indulgence. David Platt in his book, Counterculture, writes this. The essence of what the Bible calls sin is the exaltation of self. God has designed us to put him first, others second, and ourselves last. Yet sin reverses that order. We put ourselves first, others next, and God somewhere in the distant background. As we talk about evangelism and a culture of immorality, we have to realize that it's a culture about self. And a culture of self can easily work its way into the culture of the church. So let's pray. And let's ask God to reveal his word to us this morning to shine a light in the darkest areas of our hearts by the indwelling power of his spirit. Amen? Let's pray. Gracious Father, I thank you that we are gathered here today, that you have called us, that you have uh, brought us to a place where we can worship corporately, where we can read your word faithfully, where God, your spirit encourages us as we gather together and open up your word. Father, I pray right now that as we read your word, your spirit would be alive and active, that your word would be sharper than a double-edged sword, that you would penetrate between bone and marrow, and that you would convict us of sins that are in our life, and that we would see where culture and immorality has worked its way into our hearts and into our lives and into our church. And Father, I just pray for forgiveness. God, we corporately confess that we wonder that we wander towards self. So God, we ask for forgiveness this morning. We ask God that you would reveal yourself through your word and that you would change us from the inside out. It is in Christ's name I pray, amen. Evangelism in a culture of immorality requires a community for Christ. It requires a community for Christ. Verse 18, or chapter 18, verses one through four. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila and a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. This is God's word. At this point, Paul is exhausted. Paul has probably traveled some 2,000 miles by foot sharing the gospel in different towns, in different cities. Not only that, he's probably tra traveled almost 1,000 by boat. This is the equivalent of us on foot leaving Chattanooga and walking towards California, stopping in every major city and every major town, presenting the gospel of Jesus Christ to a people who have never heard it before. Can you imagine how exhausting and how tired he must be? I mean, he had left Antioch of Syria and went to Galatia. Then he crossed from Troas and entered Philippi where he was beaten, where he was imprisoned, and where he was chained, but where he worshipped at midnight. He then arrives in Thessalonica where he is harassed terribly. 
He's ran out of the city. He goes to Berea. No sooner than he establishes a church in Berea, he is then chased down by the Thessalonians who had followed him there. And then he gets to Athens. And when he gets to Athens, he faces a culture that is full of intellectualism and idolatry. And now he arrives in Corinth and he is exhausted. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3, if you have your Bibles, you might want to flip over to 1 Corinthians. I'm going to be there quite a bit. He says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Imagine this superhero of the faith, Paul, the one who is willing to walk 2,000 miles to preach the gospel. He arrives, and he arrives in Corinth alone, and he arrives looking at a city that is full of immorality, promiscuity, and he is tired. He is weary, and he is fearful. And it says in verse 2, And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He found a couple that he says in Romans chapter 16 are his fellow workers in Christ Jesus who risked their necks for his life. He found a community. He found people that he had not only had in common the trade of tent making, but he found in common a people who shared the love of Jesus Christ. We don't know if they became believers because of Paul or if they were excommunicated because they were believers and now they've met Paul. We don't know which one it was, but we know that there was a community that was formed there. And when Paul describes them in the book of Romans, he says, listen, these two, they risked their lives for me. And we should give thanks to them and all the churches give thanks to them because of what they did. They not only were a help to him in his time of fear and need. They also, as we're going to read, discipled Apollos and hosted a church in their home. You know, if the Apostle Paul needed the church, how much more do we need the church? I mean, you think about the Apostle Paul, he needed people when he was tired and he was weary. Have you ever been tired and weary of doing good? Have you been tired and weary in your faith? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul writes to the church in Corinth. And I just want to read a lot of scripture this morning, and not because I want to be boring, but because I want God's word to reveal to you the severity of the issue of evangelism and a culture of immorality. John MacArthur quotes William Ramsey in saying that characteristically churches take on the characteristics of the environment in which they exist culturally. He's saying that the culture in which the church exists in, that culture will work its way into the church, and before too long, it'll have the same characteristics. And so when Paul writes to the, the church in Corinth, he's writing to a church that has now began to look a lot like the culture that we've just talked about, a sexually immoral culture, has now worked its way into the body of Christ. And so he's going to write to them, and I'm going to just start at the beginning right here, and he says in verse 1, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sothenes to the church of God that is in Corinth to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Let me stop right there. He is writing to a gathered body of believers who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. You know how exciting that is? I get to talk to you today and look at your faces and you are a body of believers that are being sanctified by Christ Jesus. What unity is in that? What, 
What wonderful fellowship is in that, that we are joined together by Jesus Christ right now in a world that is full of sin and immorality. We come in here and we gather together. This is, if Paul needed the church, we need the church. We're called to be saints together with all those who are in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So we are both, we're both here corporately, locally, and we're part of something globally. We are saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus. Then in every way you are enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me stop right there. He's saying, look, you will be found guiltless because of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know why? God is faithful. That is good stuff, isn't it? Though we live in a culture of immorality, look, there is something that God has done on our behalf through his son, Jesus Christ, that we will be found guiltless on that day because God is faithful, by whom we are called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. We are called into a fellowship. We are saved individually, but we gather corporately. This is the body of believers, verse 10. And now he has a, okay, therefore, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree. Would you say that the church agrees on everything? That there would be no divisions among you? Would you say that there are divisions among those who gather together as the body of Christ? But that you would be united in the same mind and the same judgment. As he writes to this gathering church, this body of believers, he's saying, look, all of these things you share in common. And so I appeal to you to be united. United in the same mind and the same judgment. Meaning that you say in your mind and in your judgment that what's, what the Bible calls sin is sin. And that there's no, there's no arguing about it that you have the same mind and the same judgment, that if the Bible calls it sin, then we're going to call it sin. But we're not going to make excuses for it. We're not going to overlook it. We're not going to say it's okay because it's culturally okay. He says, look, you need to have the same mind and the same judgment when it comes to sin, and you need to be unified in this. Unity is not avoiding issues. It's not overlooking sin and having, it's, it's having the same mind and the same judgment about what sin is and what immorality is. This is why Paul writes in Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, Brothers, if anyone is caught in a tra- transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So what Paul would say is, look, the church needs to be the church. It needs to be unified. There doesn't need to be divisions on what it says is okay and not okay when it comes to sin. And listen, we have denominations and we have churches that have said, well, you know what? We're not going to call that sin anymore. I mean, are you, are you serious? Are we reading the same Bible? 
Is the gospel offensive and now we don't want to be offensive anymore? It is offensive. It does call you out on sin. It does reveal to you in your heart where, where sin has creeped in, where you've wandered. And when we're caught in a transgression, when we're caught in sin, you need the church around you to help you, to hold you accountable, to walk with you, to restore you. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, if you'll flip over. So Paul's writing this letter because the culture in Corinth has worked its way into the culture of the church. And he says this, It is actually reported that there is sexual morality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant? Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Let me stop right there. It's actually, it's actually reported that the gathering body of believers is accepting sexual morality? This is what Paul writes. He's like, look, sexual morality is the Greek word pornoneia. It, it encompasses every type of sexual sin outside of covenant marriage. It, it's where we get the word pornography from. And he's saying, look, you... You're not only allowing this thing to go on in, in the midst of the church, you're applauding it. You're accepting of it. You're turning a blind eye to it. You're acting like it's no big deal. And more specifically, he's saying, look, this is so bad that there's a man who is now in a relationship with his stepmom. And you're going to act like it's okay? There's an old saying that says, you become what you tolerate. I don't know who said it. You become what you tolerate. The church in Corinth was beginning to tolerate sexual morality. And therefore, the church was becoming sexual moral. Look, the church today, living in a culture of immorality, if it begins to tolerate sexual morality, it will become an immoral church. And this is why Paul has such strong language. Verse 3. For though absent in the body, I am present in the spirit, as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Paul basically says, look, this man's unrepentant heart is polluting the body. And the only way to resolve this is to excommunicate him from the gathering of the body so that possibly through the conviction of the Spirit, this man's soul can be saved. Today, when we try to do church discipline, it's not as grievous for an individual because they simply say, all right, well, if you don't accept me, I'll just go to the church down the street. You know what? They think this is okay. He says this, you're boasting, verse 6, is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Purge out the old leaven. Paul here gives an example of the Passover feast. They would remove all the leaven from the house 
during the week of Passover. Leaven was a picture of sin. And they would get it all out. Like There can be no leaven. There can be no hint of sin. We have got to cleanse it. We've got to get it all out because a little pinch of leaven can infect the whole batch, right? And so we've got to get all of it out. For Christ is the Passover lamb. Jesus, in fact, is our Passover lamb. That's why we celebrated the Lord's Supper today. The fact that his blood was shed for us so that the judgment of God would pass over us. And therefore that we would be found pure. We would be found unleavened that we would no longer allow the sins of this world to dwell in our hearts and in our lives, but we would, we would get the leaven out of our lives. Verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of this world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or reviler or drunkard or a swindler, not to even eat with such a, such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. The Corinthian Christians were to expect Christian behavior out of the brotherhood. Have we forgotten to expect Christianity out of the brotherhood? Flip over one chapter there to chapter 6, verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but... I love that. I mean, if you write in your Bible, I, I encourage you, circle the were, okay? Were some of you. This is no longer you. You have been changed You've been sanctified. You've been filled with the Spirit. You've been given a new heart. There is Jesus Christ who paid the penalty of your sins, who now gives you life. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Amen? Wow. Why would you allow yourself to continue in the sins of this world of immorality when you have been washed, when you have been clean, when you have been sanctified, when you have been filled with the Spirit of God. Flee, verse 18. Flee from sexual morality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Isn't this a beautiful letter? I love it. Paul, writing to a church that the culture is starting to feed into, he says, look, remember Jesus Christ. Fix your eyes on Jesus. The author, the perfecter of your faith. He is faithful 
He will sustain you. He will hold you. Don't allow the culture in this world, what they call okay, to, to work its way into the church to where we overlook sin, where we applaud sin, where we turn a blind eye to sin. We should expect the church to try to get the leaven out of the lump. If you're sitting here today and you've not tried to get the leaven out of the lump, you should be, you should be repentant. God, you sanctified me. You saved me. You purchased me. My body should be one that honors and glorifies you, not one that is lived for self, self-indulgement, self-approval. And evangelism and a culture of immorality requires the church to be different than the culture of immorality. Number two, evangelism and a culture of immorality requires a commitment to Christ. Let's pick up verse five. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with a word. Don't you love that? You're, I'm, I'm occupied with a word. Testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, you, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. This was not a church split. He didn't just say, well, forget it. I'm going across the street. That's not what happened here, so don't try to read that into it. That was a joke. Thank you. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. He stayed there quite a long time. I love that. Do not be afraid. Remember how I said that Paul arrived in Corinth? He arrived tired and weak and fearful. But he arrived and he decided to preach nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's what 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 1 through 5 says. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech was, and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. He preached Jesus Christ in a culture of immorality. Those who proclaim Jesus Christ and him crucified, number one, preach when it's not popular. I got news for you. Proclaiming Jesus Christ in a culture of immorality is becoming more and more and more unpopular. It says when they opposed him, And reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your heads, I am innocent. This is is what Nehemiah did in in chapter 5, verse 13. Nehemiah commands his people to no longer oppress the poor. And he says this in verse 13, I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. 
The idea was is that as you walked, the garment would collect all kinds of dirt, all kinds of dust, all kinds of leaves, all kinds of twigs, and those things would cling on to the garment as if they were part of the garment, but they're not part of the garment. They're not part of the ones who have been knit together by the Spirit of God. And so he flung them out and he said, look, you're not part of the garment anymore. I'm innocent. I have proclaimed Jesus Christ to you and him crucified. Paul was willing to preach when it was not popular Albert Muller says this, our job, our calling, our mission is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's all of us. Whether you have, whether you have the gift of teaching or not, you're called to proclaim the gospel. We do this unapologetically and boldly and offer the gospel to all people. That is our task and our responsibility. The work of salvation, however, belongs to, in the sovereign hands of our God. We can therefore preach with confidence knowing that we cannot fail. We only fail if we remain silent. We who proclaim Jesus Christ and him crucified in a culture of immorality preach when it's not popular and press on for his people. This verse right here, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. Verse 10, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you for I have many in this city who are my people. I want you to see this picture. Does anybody know where that is? It's Chattanooga. I would have put a picture of Cleveland up there, but it's just not as pretty. <laughs> it, it just look, it looks sad. I was like, well, we're not doing that. It's sad. But there are people in Cleveland that need Jesus too, okay? So here's Chattanooga. Do not be afraid. Can I tell you I'm afraid? Can I tell you how hard even as a pastor it is to, to lead that conversation to a gospel conversation? Can I tell you that there's all kinds of insecurities in me of, oh, they're going to get so mad if I do this? And I got the perfect intro. What do you do for a living? I'm a pastor. We're having the conversation. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. Church, go on speaking. Do not be silent in a culture of immorality. Why? For I am with you. Remember the Great Commission? Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. For I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I am with you, church. Think about it this way. As you leave these, these doors today, as you go back into your world, as you go back into your schools, your community, your workplaces, he is with you. Whew. And you need the body of Christ to encourage you when you're weak. You need the body of Christ to hold you accountable when sin tries to creep into your life. But he is with you. And I want you to look at that picture, and I want you to think about all the people that are in that picture that you can't even see right now and he says, I have many in this city who are my people. And some of them are lost in sin right now. Lost in a culture of immorality. Lost and blinded by what we think our self should be. Evangelism in a culture of immorality requires, number three, a compliance with Christ. 12 through 23. But when Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made an united attack on Paul 
and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galeo said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or a vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal, and they all seized Sothenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Galileo paid no attention to any of this. The word Sothenes, the name Sothenes there, is the one that also appears in the first verses of the letter to Corinth. Some would say that this is the same Sothenes, the one who is beat here, later becomes a believer, and now is even riding with Paul. Verse 18, after this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. And with him, Priscilla and Aquila. At century, he had his hair cut. He had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a little period, a little longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. There's just one line here, this verse 21. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. If God wills. It's, it's interesting. Sometimes we will say that. Am I right? Well, if the Lord wills, we'll see what happens. Yeah, if the Lord wills. And I think that's our way of getting out of things sometimes. You know, like, you're going to come back? Yeah, well, if the Lord wills. I'm not counting on it, but we'll see what he says. What is the will of God? I mean, honestly, if you're asked that question, what is the will of God? Maybe you're making a big decision. Maybe you're trying to decide what step to take next. What is the will of God? First Thessalonians, Paul tells you what the will of God is. And I'll be honest with you, you can't know the will of God without reading the word of God. You can't know the will of God without reading the Word of God. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Finally then, brothers, we ask, you, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of, of God, your sanctification. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. You want to know what the will of God is? It's right there. Your sanctification. That you abstain from sexual morality. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives the Holy Spirit to you. What is the will of God for your life? Sanctification. 
So as we live in a culture of immorality, as we leave these doors, knowing that God has charged us to not be silent, but to speak, because there are many who are his, I'm going to ask you this question. In your daily decisions, in your work, in your relationships, in your personal, in your financial, in your educational, in your recreational decisions, are those choices, choices working toward your sanctification or against your sanctification? Are the decisions you're making in relationships working toward sanctification or against sanctification? Are the decisions you're making in your workplace working toward sanctification or against sanctification? In a culture of immorality, the church is called to be holy. Can we pray? Gracious Father, I love you. I thank you so much for your word. It is a light to our path. We thank you for your spirit that indwells us, that it empowers us, that emboldens us, that equips us, that gifts us, that gives us the things that are needed for us to be faithful. Father, it is impossible to please you apart from your son, Jesus Christ. So we thank you for the salvation that we have through your son. Father, if there's someone here who doesn't know you, I pray that today they would make that decision. If there's someone here who has allowed sexual morality to enter their life, that they would be repentant today. They would fall on their face before you and that they would confess, that they would find a church home to hold them accountable. Father, we thank you for the body of believers, that you've united us, that you've knit us together. Lord, now, Father, I ask that you give us a bold witness as we enter into our town and our city and our community. In Christ's name, amen. Will you stand? Will you respond? Thanks for listening. It is our prayer that this message has helped you grow in your walk with Christ. Go to our website, meadowviewbaptist.com, or subscribe to hear more sermons like this, or to get more information about how to be involved at Meadowview Baptist.